Okay, we're looking at God's word. We're looking at 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. It's a short passage, but um, if you have your Bibles, um, you want to keep that open because we're going to be diving into it. Now, when you're discouraged, what picks you up? When you're discouraged, what picks you up? Tenderness or toughness? See, I want to think that it's a manly thing to be encouraged by toughness. I mean, that's how I'm encouraged, right? But if I'm honest, there are times when, depending on the situation or the mood, when actually, no, I need to be encouraged by tenderness. For instance, there are times when I want Kay, my wife, to give me feedback, brutal, honest feedback on my sermon, right? And then there are times when it's like, please, I just need a little bit of gentle mercy in what you say. Yeah. Now, I'm guessing that the majority of us, we want to be encouraged by tenderness. Um, but just out of curiosity, how many of us actually like to be encouraged by toughness? Raise your hands, anyone? There are a few people. See, I'm, it's not just me, okay? There are some of us. Yeah. No, but today, we're going to see that it's usually both. Tenderness, toughness. When discouraged, we can be strengthened by truth and love. Things that kind of seem like opposites are actually complementary, and we need both. Okay? See, the church that John is writing to, um, they are discouraged, and they've had their faith challenged by supposed Christians who had come into their uh, midst, and they said that they had the secret to unlock their relationship with God. These were the Gnostic-influenced false teachers. But they were disruptive to the point that the Christians now, they weren't sure about what was true anymore. Now, many of us you know, here, we're not going to be influenced by anything like that. But I, I have to say, the struggles are still real. The struggles are real. See, I've been working downtown lately, and I've been working in some of the cafes, and I've seen the Mormons out on the streets. Maybe you've seen them on the corners on Bedford Street, right? Um, it seems to be the season. Two guys, they're always together. I've seen two girls now going out as well. And if someone who is um, unsuspecting of who the Mormons were, Say they had no religious affiliation, no exposure to religion. They just had some friends, and these friends happened to be Mormons, and they brought the, um, them into the, the, the community. Some people, not knowing anything, they would be really impressed. Really impressed with these people. They are clear on their purpose, the Mormons. They're aligned on their message. They have this close fellowship. They have strong family values, and they seem to be wealthy, too. 
looks like they're very impressive and that they have it all together, and people might be drawn to that. Again, we might not be straying into any kind of Mormon territory, but in a parallel way, maybe we're kind of drawn to things like, should my Christian walk? It should be a little bit more enjoyable, shouldn't it? Maybe I need to be more put together. I see all these Christians around me, and they seem so in tune with the Lord. They seem to have that secret spirit sauce. I don't know. Maybe it's the church. Is our church not cutting it? It's easy to think that the church is the problem. We're not wanting a Mormon experience, but we, it could be that we just see people in our church community and they seem to be better off than me. They're better off than me. Folks, hear me on this. That is very easy to feel. And it can even lead to shame. Shame is like gas that you pour on the flickering flames of discouragement. Why do they seem more disciplined? Why do they seem more knowledgeable? Why do they seem more blessed? See, try as we might, it might feel like our Christian experience is subpar. Now, there are a lot of reasons why Christians can be discouraged. But here John writes to encourage ordinary Christians like you and me. But as we read, we're going to see that he doesn't coddle us. No, he has more respect for us. He gives us grown-up encouragement, okay? Not kiddie encouragement. No fluffy word, no whipped cream, no rainbow sprinkles, okay? It's a probing word that forces us to embrace the truth of God. And sometimes we need that in our discouragement. A strong word, even if it's delivered very gently. So, are you discouraged? kind of unmotivated, just going through the motions. If you need a word of encouragement today, may this word to be like smelling salts for our souls to revive us. Would it stir confidence and passion in us a little bit more? Let's, let's dive in hoping that it does. I've got three points. The first point is clarity. Looking at verse 1 again. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay? God has made a way for all of us to have intimate, loving fellowship with him. How do we have it? John says, just don't sin. Right? Last week we learned that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Just don't sin and you can have this beautiful, intimate fellowship with God. Now, is that helpful or is that unrealistic? But can we at least appreciate how refreshing it is in that John writes very simply and directly it's to bring clarity to our faith. John writes, little children, do not sin, but we will sin. And so what do we do? John tells us, turn to our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. We turn to him confessing our sin. We experience forgiveness from him, which is made ours by faith. We ask him for help to live the life that he calls us to live. Turn to Jesus. 
because John tells us he is our advocate. What is an advocate? An advocate is someone who pleads for us, defends us, and cares for our cause. Now, the word advocate is the same word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit's role as comforter. Okay? Maybe you, you've heard this description of the Holy Spirit, that he is the comforter. It comes from this word called paraclete, which means comforter, or it could also mean advocate. In fact, the word paraclete also means encourager. But what it really means, if you just break down the words, it's a compound word, the Greek word, what it means is called alongside. That's what paraclete means. Called alongside, it's translated encourager, comforter, advocate. But called alongside. The Holy Spirit, he is called alongside us. And here John tells us, so is Jesus. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is called alongside us, and he pleads our cause before the Father in heaven. Jesus, he is our advocate. And what that really means in just basic, normal terms is Jesus is my champion. He's my David facing all of my Goliaths. Right? He's for me when I feel like I am alone, when I can't do it on my own, when I have run out of people to blame, when all that's left is me. See, discouragement, it can make us feel like that, right? It's in these moments that Jesus, he is not looking down on us with a scowl, but is actually with us, next to us, taking us by the arm, bringing us before the Father so that we would confess our sins, so that we would find forgiveness in the midst of all of our discouraging, unhappy feelings. Yes, my sins, not everyone else's sins, not all the problems of everyone else that makes my life so stressful. My sins. I feel terrible, I feel horrible, but no. Jesus, he calls me and he gets me to confess my sins, yes. And there comes a point when it comes, where, where it comes down to not how I feel, but what is right before God. Jesus is here next to me, with me, convincing me confess sin, to receive the Father's forgiveness, to believe it, and to apply it. It's encouraging to know that we have an advocate that we can turn to who is called alongside us rather than to remain far off from God with unconfessed sin and a load of guilt. Now, um, let me address something that might be rising up in your minds. You might be thinking, what is the deal with me talking about sin? So much, it seems like. That's probably why like, people don't like to come out to church. They don't want to be told and kept uh, oppressed that their sin is keeping them down, making them feel like they're always guilty. Church is always so negative, it seems like, making people feel bad. I'll never forget one church attender early in the early days of our church plant. After the service, she came up to me with the program, and she said, you know, I've been having a good week, but then I had to read this confession, and now it's like, why do we do this? You know? Why do we have to confess sins and start to feel bad and be reminded of all these things? It's so depressing. Now, it's a widely held sentiment. 
And so I want to address that. And uh, we need to be honest about the, what the real problem is. Okay. Um, John Tyson, he's a pastor in New York City. He was reflecting on what he learned from Tim Keller. And this is what he wrote. John Tyson wrote, many have written about how a person alive today will see more advertisements in a single year than a person living 50 years ago would have seen in their entire life. Okay? But rarely do people comment on the fact that a typical person today will see more high-definition violence, tragedy, suffering, and disaster in a single year than a person would have seen in an entire lifetime. This is a form of secondhand violence from which we are collectively suffering. It's no wonder there are record rates of anxiety and depression among Gen Z. Okay? Now, Tyson, he quotes Keller. Tim Keller says this, we are exposed to so much brokenness in the city that we must constantly expose our hearts and minds to beauty to heal them. And from that, Tyson realized that he had somewhat of a utilitarian view of things, and he had never conceived of beauty as something essential in his life, a form of resistance and warfare against the effects of sin. Beauty. Now, why is, what, what's my point in mentioning all this? To put, posit, put it positively, why does the Bible talk about beauty so much? Because there's so much sin in the world. Or put negatively, there is so much sin and the downstream effects of sin, the brokenness of the world, that we just can't ignore it. We're not sticking our heads in the sand, saying there's nothing wrong, we just need a little more inspiration from God to make my life a little bit better. We're not saying this world is so messed up and I'm just an innocent victim and so Jesus can help. The church is not saying you are the cause of all the social ills in the world by your sin, but we are collectively a part of the mess. We're trying to untangle that mess, one person in their relationship with God at a time. And we're saying that there is truth and beauty on offer to rage against all that is wrong in the world and even in us. See, we're trying to ex uh, uh, envision the splendor of holiness. That's how David puts it. The beauty of holiness, he says, to obliterate what sin has done to the world and to us. But we need to see the problem as it really is. Okay. Now, having said that, sin is not the only thing that matters. It's not everything that matters because there are important positive truths, beautiful truths that we need to emphasize and balance as well. But we need to recognize sin is always going to be more significant than we feel comfortable with. All right. So wrapping up this point then, I need to draw our attention to one more thing that conveys the seriousness of sin. It's the solution to the sin problem. John explains, verse 2, by telling us that the solution is Jesus, who is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Okay? Now, John is focused on this because um, John is writing to the church that's been told lies by false teachers, that sin doesn't matter. And John gives us attention to correcting this serious error because they were minimizing the problem and therefore minimizing the solution. But the solution is Jesus, who is the propitiation for our sins. Now, that word propitiation, it's such an odd word. It's not used in our vernacular. No one really knows what it means. Actually, we know what it means, but we don't really use it, right? Propitiation, it means to satisfy wrath, 
to turn away anger. It's a word used to help us understand what happened um, at the cross, the, the atonement. But it's been controversial in recent times. Some Christians don't like the idea that God is angry. And so instead of using the word propitiation, they use another similar word, expiation. Expiation. And what that means is that you simply remove sin by cleansing us. Okay? That's different from propitiating, which is to appease anger. Now, that difference is significant. The difference is that propitiation, that is personal. Expiation is impersonal. It's like when we say a marriage broke down. That's impersonal. Versus saying the partners had anger issues, which they just could not resolve. That's very personal, right? See the difference there? Propitiation, expiation. With God, his response to sin is a just, fair, settled response, measured wrath. Now, if we struggle with that, it's probably because we don't realize the seriousness of sin, our sin against him, our offense, how personally offensive and dishonoring our sin has been against God. So propitiation, it's the right word. Why? Verse 2, John said he is, the, he is the propitiation for our sins, meaning Jesus in his death, all of him, not just his arm or his leg, his blood-draining death. That is what was required to atone for sin and bring reconciliation. Here, John is not minimizing what we understand of Jesus, the righteous, what he did for us, the unrighteous. So we, let's be clear. We have an advocate we have an advocate to turn to. Now, our next point is going to drive us to wonder and think about why we actually don't turn to him. Because it sounds so basic. We just turn to Jesus, right? Well, why don't we? Second. Second point, balance. You know, as clear as God's word is, sometimes it can be confusing because there is a surface word and then there's some nuance and sometimes even deeper meaning. There are two examples that I'm going to draw out from our passage that requires explanation and calls for balance. The first is at the end of verse 2, where we learn about Jesus. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, when you look at a verse like that, it sounds like, it looks like on the surface that Jesus' death paid for the sins of the whole world, and therefore what? The whole world is saved. That's a surface reading, but that can't be right because not everyone is saved. There's that faith element where we have to believe in Jesus and his death that it propitiates my sin. If you don't believe that, you're not saved. But why John puts it this way is because he has to make clear that Jesus was not just for Israel but for the whole world where even Gentiles could be saved. Again, John's correcting the false teachers who were saying only special people could be saved. No, the gospel offer of salvation was for all to hear and all to believe, whether you were Jewish, Gentile, anyone, not just a select few. Or put another way, Jesus' saving death is available for every kind of person, even if it was not experienced by every single person in the whole world, okay? This is the public nature of the gospel. Jesus was sent into the world so that all of us could hear 
that there is an offer of forgiveness to return to God. Okay, you see how you need some balance there? You need to understand um, what it means when John says the whole world. But the second example, and this is more to the point, what we really need to be aware of to be in a right relationship with God. Verse 3, look at verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Okay? Um, Again, John's dealing with false teachers. You see how he says, whoever says, chapter 1, he said, if we say, three times. Now he's saying, whoever says, putting some distance between him and the false teachers. He's, He's addressing this disconnect that people have thought, that you could have a knowledge of God, but not live the way of God. False teachers said that they knew God, but they didn't keep his commandments. They didn't think they needed to keep his commandments. Whereas for us as faithful Christians, we know that our doctrine has to line up with our lives. Right? Of course we're to keep God's commandments. There's no controversy. What's the problem then? You see the conclusion that John draws, though? direct, it's clear, but it's also a bit worrisome. Have we, did we read that? It says, don't sin. Keep his commandments. But what if you don't keep the commandments? Then John says, you are a liar, and the truth is not in you. And is John saying that to us? <laughs> you don't keep the commandments, then what? We're liars? See, you see how it could be read that way on the surface. That's not very encouraging. But this is where we have to appreciate John's style of writing. He is deliberate in how clear he is so that we would know what to believe. John is not trying to confuse us or destabilize us. He's pushing us to own what we believe, to be confronted with the truth, to be able to say, yes, I believe it. Yeah, we believe verses 3 and 4. First, our text, what does it say? We know that we have come to know him. Yes, we have come to know God because of Jesus. We don't doubt that. And therefore, secondly, it says, we have come to know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Yes, we do keep his commandments. Right? We we know that we're to obey God's commandments. We want to obey God's commandments. We know that God's commandments are good and right and true. Let's not be confused about that. See, John cuts through all that confusion to state clearly what is true, first and foremost. That's a simple and deep lesson for all of us. State the positive truth before we start saying, but, or what about? What is our salvation? State the positive truth. It's us saying we believe that we were created to live a right way. It's been clearly stated by God's commandments and his law, but we fail to live by them. And so we deserve God's punishment, but he saves us from our predicament so that we can start living rightly with Jesus. Basic stuff. Believe that first and foremost. And then... Secondly, and only after we acknowledge what we know to be true, then do we acknowledge the but. Okay, I keep the commandments. I want to keep the commandments. 
but I don't always keep the commandments perfectly. I still sin. At this point, we all have a decision to make. When I fail to keep the commandments, what will I believe? Am I going to believe that I'm a liar and the truth is not in me? Or am I going to turn to Jesus, my advocate, and confess my sins? Those are the decisions. Not confess, or am I going to confess? We know the commandments. We want to keep the commandments. We sometimes keep them, but we don't keep all of them perfectly all the time. That doesn't make me a liar, but it makes me a humble, confessing Christian who needs Jesus. Okay? That's the, that's the decision we need to make. And as simple as that sounds, it is hard to do. It leads to another option, a decision that we could choose. I hesitate to acknowledge my sin, and instead, I do that human thing that called justifying ourselves. I'm not going to acknowledge my sin and confess it. What am I, I going to do instead? I don't think I'm a liar. What am I going to do instead? I'm going to justify myself. This is a tension that all of us face in life. It's this tension of where I know that I'm forgiven, but I continue to sin. So it leads me to wonder, am I guilty or am I freed from my burden of guilt? I don't know if you've recognized this in, in yourself, but this is how we all start to feel over time. Am I guilty or have I been freed from the burden of guilt? Over, in, in fact, overall, maybe I could ask this question. What is your soul's disposition? Do you always feel a little bit guilty or do you feel very carefree? A little guilty or very carefree. And if I could try to, you know, just put it in more biblical categories for us, for us to think about. Are we more aware of our sin or are we more aware of God's transformative power? What are we more aware of? See, we need to keep both in balance. But we tend to one or the other, creating an imbalance. I'll admit for myself that I tend to pull towards me being more aware of my sin and therefore me feeling a little bit guilty more than feeling free. It's got to be both. But I think we all tend to one side of the tension or the other because that balance is hard to maintain. We all have a natural preference for how, to, how we want to relieve that tension within us. We need to hold both together, but the scales usually tip. Are you constantly aware of your sin? It can lead to guilt. Unconfessed, it just piles up, compounds, and you feel burdened. Or are you aware of God's transforming truths and power? We love it. We're challenged by it. We try living it. We stay upbeat and positive. We get annoyed by people who talk about sin, right? We're striving gets tiring, though. Sometimes we look for other ways to be motivated rather than turning to our advocate in confession and repentance. There's a tension that we all need to be aware of. A little guilty or a carefree? Which one are you? Bring it back to the main point. John doesn't want us to be unstable in our faith. He, he wants us to be assured of our salvation and faith. So he gives us this very direct word so that we are clear. 
As we process it, it doesn't seem that clear. So how is it going to help? And that brings us to our final point, encouragement. How is John going to encourage us to maintain this balance? Verse 5. Look at verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What John doesn't do for us is relax the tension, making it easier for us. Pick one or the other. He doesn't say just try your hardest and whatever happens will be. No, what does John do for us to encourage us with this tension that we have to keep in balance? He gives us Jesus. Look carefully at verse, um, verse 5. John doesn't say you must keep God's commandments. He said that in verse 4. He makes this subtle and necessary shift to say whoever keeps his word. Right? Look at the beginning of verse 4 and beginning of verse 5. The beginning of verse 4 says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments. That person is a liar. The truth is not in him. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him, the true and truly the love of God is perfected. What's the difference between commandments and word? This is significant. Commandments, they are clear instructions, what God calls us to do and don't do. The rules, the Ten Commandments. But what is the word? It's more than the clear rules. It includes the promises, the plans and purposes, the history, the hopes, the whole gospel story. It's more than a written code, but a whole person and everything that, that he represents. Folks, uh, I'm going to share with you a little bit of next level stuff here, okay? <laughs> We've got to start to appreciate the Bible authors for who they are as unique persons so that they help us give us a full picture of the faith. And what's fascinating about John is that he does not use the word law in his letters. He's written 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation. He does not use the word law at all. The closest thing that he gets to is the word uh, um, lawlessness. That's later in 1 John. But never does he press the law. He uses the, law, the word law 14 times in the Gospel of John. But it's never to teach or put forward positive theology based on the law. This is hugely significant, this observation. And it's not because John is saying the law doesn't matter anymore. No, the law matters. The law has its place in our system of faith. But John can convey the vitals of our faith without mentioning the word law. See, why Christians, why we like to use the word law is because there's this enforcement that comes with it. We don't like anarchy. We know that God has laid down the law, and so we try to abide by it. And we have the force of God on our side, his judgment when people violate the law. But at the same time, John doesn't think he needs to use the word law to get across God's uncompromising standard, his inerrant word that demands obedience. John 1.17, that might be a controlling verse for John's theology. 
This is in the Gospel of John. John 1.17 says this, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Two people and what they represent. The fullness of the law, that is grace and truth that came in the person of Jesus. That's who we turn to when we don't keep the commandments. That is the word that we must cling to and keep. Not the written code, but the gospel word, who is Jesus. How do we maintain the, maintain the balance of being aware of our sin and trying to embrace God's transformative truths? We turn to Jesus, our advocate, to deal with our sin, to be empowered to live by God's truth and, and strength. John encourages the believer by saying, keep the word. He's told us keep the commandments, but now he says keep the word. Turn to Jesus, and then what does he say? The love of God is perfected in you. Keep the word, and the love of God is perfected in you. What a reassurance. What an encouragement. Now this phrase, the love of God, being perfected, it's another kind of um, strange phrase. Sounds simple enough, but there are different ways to understand it. What's perfected? Is it my love for God, or is it God's love for me, or is it this experience of God's loving, tingling kind of feeling? What is God's love being perfected? What does that mean? And based on everything John has said in this very short letter so far, Right? The love of God being perfected is that complete experience of God's love, how he created us for joyful fellowship, how his commands were the expressions of his light, his loving care, how he sent his son into the world to redeem us for joyful fellowship, how we can experience that joyful fellowship by returning to Jesus, our advocate, finding forgiveness and power. We can experience God's love fully. And we know it. We know the basic truths. Verse 5 again. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John uses that glorious word, abiding, abiding. We're with him. He's with us. We're more than, it's much more intimate than just two Two people, acquaintances, walking down the street together. Abiding is far more personal, where John uses that preposition, in. We are in him. We are abiding in him. And that's a spiritual connection that transcends the physical boundaries and borders of our persons. Despite all of our failures and weaknesses, we need to know that we're with Jesus. We're seeking to live the new life of faith in righteousness and holiness. He has called, he has been called alongside us, our advocate. Let me close by applying this word. Do you need to be encouraged today? I mean, not just stroked with some inspiration or petted with some kindness, but strengthened. You know, the word encouragement, I think we forget what the word, what word is in that word encouragement. Courage. Courage. How do we get courage from God? Be in tune with your spiritual state. Are you more feeling like constantly guilty or feeling like you're constantly carefree? 
Uh, that could be an imbalance that needs correcting, perhaps investigating. And that's when we're triggered, prompted to turn to our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now you know, there are some categories that we need to be thinking about. It's not just about being optimistic or pessimistic, joyful or, you know, um, serious. Are we aware of our sin and are we aware of God's transforming truths? Maybe you need to hear a gentle word today. A gentle word from God saying, rest in me. Jesus saying, come to me, come to Abba Father. Rest in me from all the irksome things that we're facing. And maybe you've been too carefree and so sin has subtly overtaken you and that's why you're irked by everything. Maybe we need to stop blaming and start just personally repenting it and examining oneself. A lot could go wrong in the world, and the world is a broken place. We could be struggling, and it's not out of anyone's fault. But you're just feeling weak to muster the courage to go another day in righteousness. The toughen-up message for us might be, rest in me, says Jesus, and in Abba Father. Who knows, maybe there's some sin that's holding us back from embracing God's transformative truth and power. Right? What is peace with God? War against sin. And we can turn to Jesus because he's right there with us. Called alongside of us, our advocate. And that might be the first step of courage, and that might be the path to encouragement. Let's pray. God, what if it's sin that's holding us back from experiencing your transformative power and truth? Oh, if that's the case, God, please take away our sin, we pray. We come before you with humble, confessing hearts. Our hearts cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. We pray, O oh God, that you would help us to see our unbelief. We pray that you would expose the lies we've been believing. Convict us of the false desires that take us away from you. Help us to see your commandments as blessings. We pray that you would call out a false identity that we might be clinging to. We pray that you would renew our purposes for your kingdom. Be our ever-present advocate where we walk with you, Lord Jesus, each day. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.